The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to talk tech, and we're going to look at the bigger tech trends that are going on between the U.S. and Europe and China and the cleavages that are starting to form and how they're going to impact the rest of the world. And two interesting events took place last week that really highlight this growing divide, particularly between the U.S. and some of its allies and the Chinese, and how it's really alienating large parts of the global south in many respects, because they're spectators to what's going on here. So first case here is in Washington, where the U.S. House of Representatives last week announced that it will take up a bipartisan bill called the Countering Untrusted Telecommunications Abroad Act. Did you get that? Usually they have these cute acronyms, so C-U-T-A, no, not this time, (laughs) that would require the State Department to report on U.S., NATO allies, and others using telecommunications equipment or services in their 5G networks that come from the likes of Huawei and ZTE. And it's the usual crackdown that the United States has been trying to do on Chinese tech. Now, this legislation marks the latest effort by the U.S. Congress to impose restrictions on the use of Chinese technology. And in many ways, it highlights such a stark contrast to what we also saw last week in uh, Shanghai. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, he arrived in Shanghai where he started his first visit back to China since he was re-elected. And one of the first stops on his itinerary was a visit to Huawei's Innovation Center. And he got a sneak peek at the company's latest 5G technology, along with demos of Huawei's latest innovations in telemedicine, education, connectivity. Now, Huawei's relationship in China goes back 25 years. It's a major player in the telecom market. The Brazilians have been one of the countries that have pushed back the hardest against U.S. efforts to restrict the use of Huawei. So in many ways, it was a very symbolic visit. And there's a lot of speculation that Lula intentionally chose to visit Huawei so he could send a message to the United States that whatever problems the U.S. has with Chinese tech, well, they aren't Lula's problems and they're not Brazil's problems. And, Cobus, all I could think about when looking at that speculation was, I think a lot of Global South countries really could sympathize with the sentiments of Lula. I think so. The thing is, Global South countries are very price sensitive. The choice of whether to go ahead and build a data network, for example, frequently like one of the biggest issues, whether you can get it for slightly cheaper. And so for them, this kind of like trust around around cybersecurity, for example, I mean, important as it is, has to be balanced with this price sensitivity and at the same time with this very strong 
demand from very young populations to have digital connectivity, for example. So, you know, for them, it's just a completely different ballgame compared to the US. And with it then also comes the larger kind of like cultural ideological issue of wanting to support global south countries or wanting some kind of south-south option. You know, um, it's kind of where, where it isn't just a situation always of global south countries buying expensive technology from the global north and therefore having global north standards imposed on them. So, you know, kind of for those politicians, they're in a very different different kind of like set of issues compared to US policymakers. And that just makes Huawei a, a completely different, you know, kind of kettle of fish for them. And it's not only just the price, it's also the fact that it's the debt financing that comes with it. Oftentimes, Huawei initiatives or ZTE initiatives come with China Exim Bank loans to finance it. And that's been really one of China's biggest competitive advantages compared to other countries in the fact that they're providing a full turnkey package. And even though large-scale infrastructure spending from the Chinese has fallen precipitously, it has not fallen as much in the tech sector. So the Chinese are still financing a lot of tech around the world, which brings us to our conversation that we're going to have. And what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and kind of cover a lot of different topics because the expert we've got with us today, he is well-versed in all of them. John Lee is the director of East-West Futures Consulting, which does consulting and risk analysis with a focus on Chinese tech. Previously, John was a senior analyst at the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. He joins us on the line for the first time from Berlin. A very good afternoon to you, John. And a good afternoon to you, Eric, um, though, of course, it's morning here in sunny Europe. Morning in Europe and uh, afternoon here in Asia. Very glad to have you on the show and to be able to kind of tap into some of your expertise on some of these issues. Let me just get your take on what we talked about with Cobus on Lula going to Huawei and the symbolism of that. He obviously had a lot of choices on what he could do with his itinerary. He chose to go last week to visit Huawei in a very high-profile visit. All the cameras were there, you know, for everybody to see. Do you think when you look at something like that, that Lula is trying to send a message to the United States to project some autonomy in its foreign policy? Or am I reading too much into this? And Lula's going to Huawei because it's just interesting to Brazil and it's important for him. Well, I imagine that it could be both. It's certainly not a subtle message to be visiting a Huawei campus in the current context. And you already mentioned the new act that's on the floor of the US Congress at the moment. Um, so I think that particularly given Brazil's history of trying to forge a third way or perhaps a south way, as you put it, on telecommunications and digital tech and security issues via the United States, in particular when we had the Snowden revelations about uh, a decade ago now, that it was a message that should have been received loud and clear in Washington. But the reality is that, as um, you and Copas put it, Eric, the priorities of many developing countries are different. And um, while people argue over exactly where Huawei's competitive advantage comes from, the reality is that its equipment is often cheaper, um, that it does the job, and that, as you highlighted, um, for countries like Brazil, giving people the opportunity to participate in the digital economy um, and rolling out the infrastructure to support that is more important um, than many of the abstract concerns um, which are foisted upon them from Washington. So, John, looking at the at the broad tech landscape at the moment, when one speaks with U.S. stakeholders, the tenor of the conversation is almost like it's not only that a de that a decoupling is necessary, but almost that a decoupling is a kind of a fait accompli, and that this is where we're going. But at the same time, we see still very high levels of interconnectivity between the Chinese tech sector and the American tech sector. Like, where are we in terms of 
this decoupling at the moment? Like how many of the Biden administration, you know, kind of decoupling measures have, for example, been actually been implemented on the ground? Well, that really depends on what we're talking about. If we look at the trade figures, for example, um, US-China bilateral trade has been rising over the last year. Now, that's partly an inflation effect. And there are other reasons why that might not indicate an ongoing healthy relationship. For example, um, you could speculate that American companies are front-loading production in China um, in anticipation of being cut off in future. And certainly, I think the geopolitical risks around doing business with China have come to be taken a lot more seriously by corporate boards around the world over the past year, especially with a major ramp-up in measures um, mainly by the Biden administration. But I don't think it's possible to talk about broad-based economic decoupling yet. I mean, certainly what the Biden administration has said the goal is, um, is a selective freeze on Chinese technological progress. And if you look at the speech that Secretary of State Blinken gave almost two years ago now, setting out the administration's China policy, um, he expressly says that the objective is not to decouple, although I don't think that he uses that word, the two economies. So even at the policy level, I don't think that we have a clear imperative um, to unwind 30 years of globalization. But at the same time, um, there are very specific things which are being put in place. And I already mentioned, um, or at least alluded to the export controls and chips, which were brought in last October, which really represented a step up from what had gone before. I mean, this was not targeted at an individual firm like Huawei, but at the entire Chinese economy and at foreign partners and allies doing business there. Um, to bring it back to your reference to the new draft bill with which you opened the podcast. But also we have on the table um, the prospect of outbound investment controls targeting certain sectors in China, the extension of similar export controls to a wider range of emerging advanced technology stacks. So stuff is being done. And I think the most interesting thing from the viewpoint of, let's call them third parties generally, but especially tech takers, which applies to most of the global South countries, is that the United States, whether it's the administration or Congress or the uh, lower levels of the executive government, are increasingly not prepared to leave it to the discretion of foreign parties as to how they play this game. Um, they are deliberately narrowing the options and forcing parties into positions where they do have to make a choice that they simply don't see as in their best interests. So, again, the United States has said repeatedly, and we've said this on this show, that they don't want countries to choose between the United States and China. But what I'm hearing from you, and also we've heard this from Evan Feigenbaum at the Carnegie Center in Washington, who said, listen, if country X starts loading up their core 5G network with a lot of Chinese 5G tech, they're going to find out that the United States isn't going to play nice with them. So maybe the rhetoric says we don't want you to choose. But if countries really align themselves with China on 5G and on Huawei and on some of this restricted technology that the United States is starting to to sanction, then it may force countries to choose. Is that what you're saying? I think increasingly the U.S. will force a choice on specific issues. So, I mean, 5G and Huawei is an obvious one where either you allow Chinese companies to tender for your infrastructure rollout or not. And 
even in the case of the United States most powerful and technologically advanced and you might think culturally close allies like the United Kingdom, I think there was obviously pressure put in place to bring about a change in outcome on decisions about telecoms infrastructure where it was seen as the wrong one by Washington. So that will be much more the case for Global South countries who don't have the, if you like, technological leverage or the position in the supply chain um, that countries like the United Kingdom do. I mean, I recently was in Singapore and there I recently had the message clearly that people are concerned that after decades of saying that they don't expect Singapore to choose between China and the United States, some of the Americans are now sending a clear message that this is in fact the game, at least when it comes to the most critically sensitive areas as they're perceived from Washington. And because we live in a world that's increasingly digitized, where more and more social functions and objects are being connected to digital networks, um, anything involving digital connectivity and technology is going to be seen as critically sensitive. By Could you be specific as to what those are? What are some of those, just so we have an understanding of what you're talking about? Sure. So in the case of Huawei, it's a telecoms equipment vendor. It provides the equipment um, that's necessary to run telecommunications networks. And the sensitivity, at least as it's been presented by the Americans in, let's say, their global campaign against Huawei, is that as we move to the next generation, so-called fifth generation telecoms, the nature of the technology, which goes with the increased capacity, which is the whole reason for the technological progression, so that we can do more things through telecoms networks than they were capable of delivering before, um, makes the security risks harder to manage. And that's the nominal reason why a distinction has been made, for example, between 4G and 5G, though how well that's respected in practice, um, I think, is uh, open to question. I mean, here in Germany, there's been much media reporting about ripping and replacing Huawei equipment in the nation's telecoms networks, because at least the way that 5G is currently being rolled out in many parts of the world, it builds upon the existing infrastructure. But the issue at play here, I think, at least from Washington's viewpoint, and certainly from the Chinese, um, because of course it takes two to tango and we should talk about how it looks from Beijing, that we are playing here basically for the foundations of the future digital economy. Because again, in a world where everything now is being computerized, connected to telecoms networks, um, there will be no severe of social life and economic life which is not touched and enabled by these technologies. So... There's the security issue, of course, of what having a dominant position in building and designing these technologies allows you to do. And that's been highlighted by the Americans. But um, there's also the issue of the economic benefits. And again, I would say that from global South countries, in many ways, this is actually more salient. And we, again, can come perhaps to how the Chinese have arrived here, because it's no accident that a company like Huawei has been catapulted over the course of, let's say, two and a half decades to the position they have in the global telecoms equipment market now. Um, it's very much a product of deliberate policy on the part of the Chinese state and a recognition that in terms of reaping the economic benefits, um, you need, to a certain extent, control and design the technology. Because if you're always a technology taker, not only are you subject to essentially the political leverage of the technology makers, but you also don't reap the same level of benefits. And in a context where many developing countries are increasingly um, hitting the middle income trap or are 
facing challenges with continued economic development, um, this is a key issue. I wonder how technology transfer plays into that issue. Obviously, there's been many, many, many complaints from um, Global North companies, and particularly American companies, about the transfer of IP to China, or the forced transfer of IP to China, and the theft of IP by China. At the same time, you know, we know that, that from earlier development histories, like, for example, from Japan or from the United States itself, that kind of IP transfer has played a big role in launching countries on a development trajectory. And I think a lot of Global South countries would like to continue that chain in, in a sense, kind of transferring IP from China or from, from other kind of players in order to then boost kind of domestic manufacturing and domestic technological development. Like, where do you see that kind of process being? Like, I worry that there seems to be a logic of some countries having to remain consistently underdeveloped, you know, kind of like over a long time. I think you put your finger on it there, Cobus. Um, that's exactly how a lot of countries look at the issue of whether they should save money and increase capacity by buying from Chinese companies um, versus put themselves, if you like, in Washington's camp and have theoretical security um, by avoiding Chinese providers like Huawei. I mean, the other way to look at this is that certainly over the last, say, three or four decades, China is the only developing country which has significantly improved its economic and technological position. So when we talk about the Chinese economic miracle, it's not just the rise in um, aggregate GDP and per capita incomes, but also um, the observable rise of Chinese companies like Huawei in these supply chains in terms of being able to improve their technological capacities and so occupy higher places in the value-added ladder. And as you said, that is essentially the way that all countries from the Industrial Revolution onwards in England have increased their prosperity and their position in increasingly complex technology stacks. Now, there's a lot of evidence in the development literature now that the inability to do this over the last three or four decades is really at the root of the, if you like, persistent underdevelopment of the third world. And that really, since the East Asian development miracles of which China, of course, is the most recent and partially successful example, there have been no cases of countries which have successfully done this. So when, again, first world representatives, officials or commentators go to developing countries and say that your first concern should be to avoid um, untrusted vendors from politically malicious systems such as that run by the Chinese Communist Party. What I think often um, is heard on the other side of the table is that we think it's more important that you stay in a state of persistent underdevelopment because of our concerns. And the entire framing is unfortunately, um, one that's not in line with the preferences of many developing countries who are stuck, as you said, um, with the prospect of being perpetually unable to improve their lot um, because they are caught essentially um, in a technological and productivity trap. Now, there are examples um, of where this is starting to change, um, and you know, China plays an interesting, if you like, middle ground there now as a developing state of um, unmatched scale, which has managed to climb the technological ladder in many areas, even if, generally speaking, it's not yet at the level of the advanced economies. But Cobus, that is what you have been saying for a very long time. That is, a lot of the conversation, at least the way it's being heard in many African governments and even among African stakeholders you've spoken to is that 
the message they're receiving is not that the United States doesn't want these countries to choose Huawei, but it's Huawei or nothing. It's not Huawei or we've got another alternative for you, but they would rather them, you know, have nothing instead of Huawei. That's at least the perception. I think Americans would probably disagree with that assessment, but that's what's being heard. You've also had a chance, Cobus, to speak with Chinese stakeholders who've said, listen, the Americans loved us when we were poor and down. And then all of a sudden we have this advanced technology where you were moving up in the value chain and now they're getting upset about us reaching out to Kenya's and Ghana's and South Africa's to talk about technology. So it's interesting that what you've been saying is exactly what John's saying. That is exactly what, you know, the messaging that is coming from China to a lot of these policymakers is that, oh, America, yeah, like as you say, America loves cheap labor and they love China providing, you know, kind of big markets and cheap labor. Once the we moved past a certain level of development, we suddenly became a massive enemy, and that's going to happen to you too. That message is very prominent, I think, in the Africa-China space. And what about the Huawei or nothing thing? Again, because the West has not really come up with an, a way for them to say, you know, Huawei has 5G, Nokia has 5G, but we don't see a European financing package on the scale of what the China Exim Bank is offering. So it ultimately becomes Huawei or nothing. Well, there's a great example. I think Huawei was involved in the bidding for a network, a subsea cable network in Micronesia, which the US then complained about. And also, you know, I think there was security issues being raised by Pacific Island governments as well. So it ended up getting cancelled. And that was a 2021 project. And they're still in negotiation now to try and kind of get a non-Chinese alternative going. Like that, that, you know, there's no movement on that. I mean, it's like a several years later, and Micronesia still has very weak internet. So that kind of situation, like, there isn't necessarily a kind of a Western alternative ready to roll. So, so John, I was wondering, you know, just, just from your, your perspective on looking at these disputes, what are some of the barriers that is keeping Western competitors from stepping up and just kind of easily kind of replacing Huawei? Well, if we talk about telecoms specifically, which is or telecoms equipment, which is Huawei's field, there are two Western competitors. Um, there's Ericsson and Nokia. And you could have a whole separate conversation about why there are no American firms um, still in this business. And a large part of that, frankly, has to do with European industrial policy and Japanese. So even among the advanced economies, let's say that it's not been an entirely friendly game over the past couple of generations. And um, again, I think everyone's aware now of the political issues around this um, and the origins of Trumpism. But as I said, a separate conversation. If we talk about providing an alternative generally, then I think that once you get away from the specific example of telecoms and Huawei, then it's perhaps less a situation where Chinese vendors are the only option and more of one where many developing countries simply don't see why they should be expected to deny themselves the opportunity of economic integration with China, whether it's through accepting infrastructure funding and construction projects um, from state-owned enterprises under the BRI framework, or buying telecoms equipment from Huawei, or allowing in Chinese e-commerce vendors or other actors, Chinese R&D partnerships. Um, as you said, the Western countries have Certainly over, let's say, the last 30 or 40 years, so let's call it since the 90s, the era of WTO globalization, had open access to many of these economies. It is, I think, very much an issue of who is entitled to benefit from access 
two markets um, and two resources. You can see that in the most direct sense um, in the tussles over access to critical minerals, which of course are important for many of these emerging technology stacks. But once again, if you're in the seat of a developing country policymaker today, you see a world in which the not only are there many adverse economic factors, rising interest rates, some um, increasing resource shortages, but also um, essentially the, if you like, technology owning or controlling blocks in the world, which is still very much the United States, its allied countries. So you could separate those into the EU countries, um, the other Anglosphere countries, and let's say the advanced East Asian economies, South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan, and to some extent China are increasingly antagonistic and are putting up barriers to mutual trade with each other. This is not, although it's obviously most pronounced in the case of the US and China, but also increasingly it's happening even in a transatlantic context. So if you see, for example, um, what's going on with the Inflation Reduction Act um, and what's essentially um, economic competition and to some extent a subsidy war between um, the United States and its allies in Europe and indeed in East Asia, certainly if you're talking about chips, then uh, again, from the viewpoint of a developing country policymaker, you are in a position where everything is becoming more expensive and your prospects for moving up this technological ladder yourself becoming more difficult rather than less. Again, in a context where no countries have really successfully done this, apart from partially China over the past few decades, because the era of open globalization has not actually been good for developing countries, even the largest like India, which is increasingly bringing in industrial policy that looks more and more like China's, or perhaps like that of the United States and the European Union themselves these days. And developing countries are increasingly seeing that they essentially need to play hardball in terms of, let's not say forcing technology transfer, but creating the conditions to allow their own companies to move up the value chain and to capture a larger share, if you like, of the benefits of open globalization um, and international trade than was the case um, over the past, let's say, 20 or 30 years. Well, let's just get to the chase here, because when you talk to U.S. stakeholders, and I'm sure you've had conversations with them the same way I have, one of the messages that I get is, don't these people understand the risk that they're taking by using Huawei and Chinese tech, Hikvision, ZTE, any number of Chinese tech companies? And again, the United States, not just in the government, but within broad swaths of the national security community and the think tank community and the academic community have come to the conclusion that Chinese tech is inherently dangerous. And so as somebody who studied this, and if you were advising a government in the global south, in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, or elsewhere, and they came to you and they said, John, the Americans tell us that this stuff is dangerous, it puts our country at risk, it puts the privacy of our users at risk. What would you tell that president or prime minister? I'd say that they need to consider carefully whether their priority is political character of the Chinese state or the economic well-being of their people. Because ultimately, if you're being forced to make a choice between China or not um, in these contexts, um, that, that effectively is what it comes down to. I mean, we, again, could have a whole separate conversation about um, the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, the way that it rules China, um, the things that it does to certain of its ethnic minorities. 
But to put it frankly, um, from the viewpoint... But what does that have to do with Huawei being secure? Well, this is the point, that when we talk about security, I guess that you could see that through two basic angles. You could see it through a political angle, which is essentially the one marketed by Washington, which is that um, the nature of the CCP system is so malicious in an abstract way, and also in tangible ways, which I've just alluded to, but obviously those are less directly relevant to your typical sub-Saharan African country, let's say, that it has to be shut out um, on a first principles basis. And of course, it's often framed in terms of preventing these governments from being able to commit human rights abuses against their own people. Again, I think that's really a case-by-case issue as to whether that's a concern in any given country. But the other aspect to security is what it allows the other country to do to you. And the argument here, as I said, before is that in an age where everything is digitally connected and the technology simply exerts more influence on daily life and all kinds of social activities, exposing yourself to the intervention or control of a foreign party that controls the technology providers is a matter of um, negative security. Now, the issue, of course, from the viewpoint of many developing countries is that they have to buy the technology from someone. And uh, as many of your listeners will recall, there obviously was a huge level of attention on the United States government penetration and level of visibility into other countries' economic and political systems after the Snowden revelations about a decade ago. I mean, if you were to put this directly to... Well, we just heard it now with... I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we've just literally heard it this week now with the revelations that the United States was spying on its allies in South Korea and elsewhere. So this question of foreign governments spying on your network and spying on your governments really is undermined by these revelations from the leaks out of the Pentagon that the United States was spying on South Korea and others. Of course. And I don't think that policymakers at least have ever um, completely forgotten about this issue. But let's say that the leaks recently have brought this back into the public consciousness. I mean, Again, as the former Prime Minister of Malaysia put it um, a few years ago, um, from any developing country's viewpoint, it doesn't matter that much whether they are spied on by the United States or China. Now, it may not look that way from Washington, but the reality is that in the, let's say, 90% of situations, it really doesn't make a material difference to your average global South country as to who is listening into their conversations. You might almost argue that because the Chinese are further down the technological ladder than the Western countries, still generally speaking, um, and actually have less leverage, at least as far as ownership of high technology goes, um, that they are less of a risk to the, again, average developing economy than, let's say, a similar level of leverage being given to countries which still very much dominate the commanding heights of various high technology stacks. Again, I suppose that your average American commentator or official um, would fall back here to the fundamental political question, whose political system do you consider to be in the long run more conducive to social well-being and to your future, if you like, sovereignty and strategic autonomy? But I mean, even on the latter now, of course, um, to come back again to a point we made earlier, the Americans are very clearly moving towards a policy of denying this essentially to their allies and partners, never mind to third parties. I mean, when developing countries see, for example, the leader of a country like France saying that Europe needs to avoid 
vassalization to the United States and to proactively defend its capacity to make its own decisions. Um, I think that it does make them consider carefully whether, if you like, um, foregoing the opportunities of economic integration with China completely and putting all their cards in the U.S. camp is a good idea. From the Global South perspective, one of the, the kind of core areas where they feel they can maybe gain a little bit of leverage is in the raw materials, the, the, the kind of critical raw minerals that go into a lot of these tech applications. So there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of pressure from different Global South governments to try and, and move up that value chain. I was wondering from your perspective, how much leverage does that give develop, the developing world, particularly as, you know, we also know that technology leaders in the US and in China are actively also looking for solutions to move beyond the current critical minerals to have some kind of post-cobalt solution, for example, for batteries. So I was wondering, like, you know, again, you know, kind of for, for Global South governments, like, you know, kind of how much of a stakeholdership do these resources give them? Again, I think it depends very much on the sector and the technology. But I mean, this is actually the area I was thinking about when I said earlier that some developing country governments are now seeing the opportunity um, to change the game, if you like, um, and to effectively force a higher amount of economic benefit from these transnational supply chains to be transferred to them by leveraging their control of resources. Um, so the Carnegie Endowment, for instance, recently published a paper looking at how Indonesia has done this with regards to control of nickel exports. And if we talk about Africa, you see other countries now um, starting to take a leaf from that playbook. Um, Zimbabwe, for instance, um, last year, I believe, brought in legislation requiring lithium processing to occur, at least in the early stages, in the country. Um, and policies like that are designed essentially um, to force foreign technology providers to locate more of the higher value-add processes in the supply chains in the countries where the resources are extracted and thereby effectively transfer economic value and technical know-how to the host country. And you've seen, as I said, Indonesia do that with respect to nickel exports. Um, the Indonesian government has um, indicated it's going to do that with bauxite and with other minerals as well. It's appealing, last time that I checked, WTO decision that was, in a case I was brought against it by the European Union regarding these um, export restrictions, which to me um, signals that they believe this is the right policy um, and they are going to play hardball if need be because they've recognized that if all they do is allow foreign companies to come in, dig the stuff up and ship it elsewhere for the next value-added process in the chain, then they will remain poor forever. I mean, that's oversimplifying, but this is the equation that a lot of developing countries are now seeing. We're talking here specifically about minerals extraction, but of course, um, you could extrapolate that to many things. So if we talk about, let's say, digital tech um, chip design and production, for instance, you look at what India is doing now, I think a lot of that is informed by their recognition that one reason why India has not become another China and has not, frankly, done as well as China over the past 20 or 30 years in terms of raising incomes and moving up the technology ladder is that it hasn't adopted Chinese-style policies of effectively forcing through one means or another technology transfer or at least creating the conditions for domestic companies like Huawei in the Chinese case to accumulate the knowledge and the financial resources to become competitive and to move up the value chain I mean, this is a reason why India, which in labor force terms, for instance, arguably has a larger and more skilled labor force in many digital technology areas than China, 
as not being able to capture the same benefits because a lot of that labor force services foreign companies which have been able to take advantage of access to the Indian labor market in a context of open globalization. And so you are now seeing um, deliberate effort in semiconductors, um, to use that specific example, by India to foster um, the growth of domestic champions and of production activity in India, because they recognize that if you essentially um, remain a technology taker, and if you like, you outsource the knowledge production and the ownership that goes with that um, to the advanced economies, then you are never going to be able to improve your lot. So we are living basically um, in a world where increasingly international trade is not just being weaponized, but if you like being adversarialized, where both the rich economies and the developing world are recognizing that it's not a simple, if you like, uh, positive sum game where more international trade on its face is good and lifts all boats. Some parties will always benefit more than others, and it's the relative benefits which governments are increasingly focused on. You're seeing that not just, of course, between the Global South and the Global North, but even among the Global North, as I alluded to before, with the rising subsidy wars between the US and its allies. Yeah. And the US and Europe are not aligned on these issues. I mean, there is some overlap, but there's not full alignment between the allies on this. And so I, I think that's a fascinating point. I mean, you've given us so much to think about in terms of all the different aspects of this. It's incredibly complicated as you're revealing to us. But yet, this is the world that we live in today and tech is shaping so much of it. John Lee is the director of East West Futures Consulting, which does a lot of consulting and risk analysis. And with a particular focus on Chinese tech, as you can see, John's perch is quite broad with a view of the entire tech universe. John, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through all of the key issues. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, where can they find you online? They could find me on Twitter at J underscore B underscore C one six. Not the handle that rolls most easily off the tongue, but I also, of course, have a website, eastwestfutures.com. And I'm also I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Okay, well, we'll put links to your Twitter handle, the website, and also some of your recent writings so people can see more about where you're coming from. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. I don't know, Eric and Gob, it's always good to talk to you. Kobus John is one of a growing number of experts who are laying bare the, I don't want to call it a lie, but the misleading statement that the Chinese and the Americans don't want you to choose sides. And it is going to be increasingly difficult for smaller countries to walk that line. And again, I go back to these comments from Evan Feigenbaum at Carnegie last year. We played some sound. Was it last year or maybe earlier this year? And he made this great point that says, you're going to find out how the United States doesn't want you to pick sides once you start loading up and making a commitment to Chinese tech. Tech is going to be one of those dividing lines. And the United States has been 100% unsuccessful in its efforts to get developing countries to turn their backs on Chinese tech. But the United States can turn their backs on those countries if it chooses to do so. And the rhetoric in the United States today is so amped up about China that I think developing countries have to be worried about that. There's no doubt in my mind. And this is, again, why we come back to this key point about what do countries in the global south want from China and the United States? And are they building sophisticated enough policies and strategies to maneuver through this incredibly complex landscape that they're in now?
Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. I think the fact that all of this is also landing on top of development itself, which is the most kind of existential challenge, I think, for most global South governments is, you know, that, that that's a significant challenge. I think it's a significant challenge to both directions because, you know, China does bring a lot more recent, a lot more in lots of ways for global South governments, a more compelling narrative of Development, You know, I tend to think of it as the, in, in shorthand, as the Shenzhen used to be a fishing village narrative. You know, it's like essentially massive megalopolis now. 40 years ago, it was a small town. You know, that very direct, very concrete development narrative, that is not something really that the United States is bringing to the table, even though it's bringing, you know, its own massive development, you know, history also. But, you know, the Chinese just have a very kind of unique kind of edge in talking to the global south around these issues and the fact that it's also bringing financing packages and cheap tech to the table in a moment where the US is particularly focusing on core allies where you know it's really in deep conversation with countries like Australia and the UK but not so much with the global south that sets up certain realities. I think that that it's not necessarily as clear that this is just going to force global, like the global South, into a, some kind of Western camp. I don't think it's that easy. You know, as long as global South priorities are not taken that seriously, particularly in in the face of the a, a gathering climate crisis that's happening on top of a development and a debt crisis, then you know they're going to have to make their choices. You know, and it's not necessarily that they're going to choose Western allies. And I thought that this question of the threat perception is also so interesting. He referenced Mohammed Mahathir, the former Malaysian prime minister. Those comments also came out of the mouth of Rwandan President Paul Kagame, who said, you know, at the time of Huawei or the Chinese spying on the African Union headquarters, you know, of course they spied on the on the headquarters. He was kind of like, well, that's what happens. That's what big powers do. And he said, if we didn't want them to spy, we would have built our own building. I'm paraphrasing that a little bit, but that's effectively what he said. And it gets me thinking that this question of focusing on the Chinese and spying, and again, I'm not trying to defend the Chinese here, so please don't send me mail and hate mail and tweets and things like this. But when we look at the incursions that have been happening, Israeli tech is used a lot in Africa. The marketplace for invasive technology is quite diverse. The Chinese are one actor among many, but then again, the revelations that the United States has been spying on its allies again really undermines the threat perception issue. Because if I was sitting there across the table from the Americans and they're saying, well, listen, if you put Huawei gear into your network, the Chinese government may be able to spy on you. And you just say, well, have you opened up the newspaper today? Do you see what your government is doing? Again, it's one of the reasons why I think the Americans have fallen flat in their narrative on Huawei is because there are so many big gaping holes in the story and that it just makes it such that it's just not a concern to many of these countries, whereas pricing and debt financing and accessibility to the technology is more important. Yeah, and kind of, you know, long-term relationships. You know, the power of Chinese diplomacy is to create this kind of bland but constant presence, you know. And that, that does stand in contrast to the way that in, in Western capitals, there's usually, w the, the wind changes all the time, every four years, you know. So so it's just, you know, the, I think a lot of global South governments are like, you know what, well, China's going to, China will probably be around, you know. It'll, it'll probably keep showing up, which you can't necessarily say about Western partners because fashions change in the West, you know? 
But that depends a little bit, though, on how tight the Americans squeeze the Chinese, because if they do cut off the chips, for example, then that is going to impact the Chinese ability to provide these services to to countries in the global south. And so it's not necessarily that, that global south countries can just keep their heads down and say, you know what, I'm going to go with the Chinese and whatever happens, happens. Que sera, sera. That's not going to happen necessarily because there could be ramifications from the U.S.-China tech war that do spill over. Yeah, but, you know, I think there's a lot to learn from, you know, the, exa- the example of, of a company like Transian, for example, in, in Africa, which makes, you know, made a lot of a Chinese company that made a lot of money out of selling cheap smartphones to Africa. But one of the, the angles in that story is that they're not only selling smartphones, they're also selling kind of 2G style feature phones, like old, old timey kind of like flip phone style phones which a lot of people in Africa use. And so lower down on the technology value scale, there's a lot of business to do there. And my worry is that what is going to emerge along these lines is that because there's a kind of a, that a cycle will develop where these countries, because they're poor, they will, you know, they need technological solutions that's appropriate to their level of development, which makes them the natural, uh, like, partners to China, whereas the U.S. is moving towards these kind of high-level, you know, applications that they only share with rich allies. So, you know, so, so that there is a kind of a global kind of, like, tech bifurcation going to happen that's going to map on top of a geopolitical one and on top of a north-south split you know like a a small rich kind of little little global north island and a big ocean of global south poverty is bad news for everyone you know even though it's ignorable for the moment in places like paris or new york you know yeah but don't forget there's a lot of american tech in those transient phones they're running on android operating systems they're using a lot of U.S. chip technology. So it's easy to say the Chinese have figured it all out and they're doing great, but they wouldn't be able to do that without American tech underneath it. Yeah, well, exactly. But then the question after that is what is going to be the impact of that dynamic on you know, development globally and on human welfare globally? You know, kind of, is it going to be a situation where where a part of the population just ends up being forced into older and older technology, whereas the rest of the world population is moving into newer technology? You know, there's a question that ranges beyond China. There, you know, and the the, the, the China's. But we already have uh, information and tech apartheid based on wealth. I mean, that's already a fact of life. That's not new. A very damaging fact of life, an extremely destructive one. Maybe, but it's a reality, though. It's a reality, though. That the rich get access to higher quality information and better tech that's more secure. Wealthier people tend to buy apples. Poorer people tend to buy Android because Apple is a statement of higher security. It's more stylized and whatnot. That's a crude breakdown. But it's very much that you're paying a premium for Apple because in many parts because of the security. So rich people have bigger walls than poor people do. That's just the reality. I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying it's what it is. I'm saying it's a bad thing. Fair enough. I think it has has massive destructive impact around the world, you know, in ways that will end up dragging down the rich, secure world as well. It's a fantasy to think that they're going to live in a kind of a little Peter Thiel 
bunker somewhere in New Zealand and, you know, and not be affected by these things. They're going to be dragged down by it. And the kind of indifference to these development challenges that are really shaping global South life, that itself is a very kind of striking part of this developing kind of geopolitical split. And it's something that's going to, in the end, actually, I think, geopolitically benefit China because they become the default partner for all of these poor countries. And there's many, many, many more poor countries in the world than rich countries. There's only a few, a little handful of rich countries. The rest of them are all poor. Well, they may become the default partner, but, you know, let's not forget that the United States plows in $11 billion of humanitarian assistance to Africa every year. I mean, orders of magnitude larger than the Chinese do. And so, again, I feel like we're taking a lot of what the U.S. and the West does for granted here. Sure. But at the same time, you know, the one campaign this week, you know, kind of posted the fact that the debt that is only coming due in Africa this year is more than all of the aid that Africa receives. So it's all of that stuff. All of that is erased anyway by the debt and so on. So it's great. Like humanitarian assistance obviously is great, but it's, it's no panacea for a lack of development. Like the development challenge is the most fundamental challenge that's facing the world, particularly as it, as it maps on top of a climate crisis. You know, there's no getting away from that. So like whatever kind of geopolitics that's happening is going to be playing into that reality. And the question is whether it's going to be making that reality worse or not. And at the moment it is making it worse. Well, let's leave the conversation there. Obviously, this is a topic that's near and dear to both of our hearts. We'd love to hear what you think. Send a comment to us. You can reach either Kobus or myself very easily. I'm at Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com. That's E-R-I-C. Kobus, C-O-B-U-S at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We love to get email from our listeners. Of course, if you want to join our conversation every day, then sign up for a subscription to the China Global South Project and all the work that we're doing. We've got editors in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East who are doing just some fantastic work. We've got some new folks coming on board in May, which I'm really excited to introduce you to. And they're going to come on the show, and we're going to be doing our new coverage here in Southeast Asia coming up soon. And just so much exciting things coming up. So, But if you want to be a part of all the best things that we're doing, try out a subscription. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. For teachers and students, don't worry. We have a 50% discount for you. All you have to do is just send me an email, and I will give you the links for that. Use your school email address, by the way, and then I will send you back the links to give you half off for a subscription. And so we're just really excited about all the cool things, our growing reader network, and all the great discussions that are taking place. And also this podcast, we will be back again next week with another edition of the show. You can also check out our Africa show as well that comes out on Fridays. And so uh, there's just obviously a lot going on. So for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China Global South podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.